this evening. Hope you had a good afternoon. Hope you got in that Sunday afternoon nap and maybe watched a little football. And uh, it's good to be back with you. Our time will be brief because I know you have breakout sessions. So what I want to do is turn your attention to the Proverbs and to give just a a very practical um, step or method that you could do with your children and show you what I think is a beautiful framework for the book of Proverbs. And so I'll do that with a little bit of time that we have. And then I also want to show you the worldview implications of one of these verses. And so look into the Proverbs as a means of discipling children, but then also to step back and say, what are the implications of what we read here? I was really, uh, let me say it this way, the way I look at the Proverbs was deeply changed by a book that I read several years ago called Hear, O Son, and it was about how the Proverbs are much like a play. You have a father and a son having a dialogue in the beginning. In fact, the first several chapters you hear over and over again, hear my son, listen my son. It begins with this conversation between a father and a son. You see a progression in different characters. The simple, which is synonymous with being young. And then there's the uh, mocker, someone who in their youth begins to make fun of wisdom. And then there's the fool, which is someone who is resolute in their rejection of wisdom. They hate not only wisdom, but also the instructor. There's a heroine throughout the book. The heroine is wisdom. She's portrayed as a beautiful woman. She is found in the city streets calling out for the simple, hoping that they will indeed listen to her and not become mockers or to digress even further and become fools. She has a nemesis. The nemesis is the adulterous woman who's portrayed as beautiful, She could be found in the city street calling out for the young. And so you have a father and a son. He's giving him instruction. And then throughout the chapters, you have a heroine, wisdom, and a nemesis, the adulterous woman fighting for the attention of this young person. And what do we end up with in Proverbs 31? A godly family. Isn't that a neat picture of how Proverbs, that made Proverbs come alive to me. There are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. So if you read one chapter a day, you'll read, the Proverbs through every single month. So whatever the calendar date is, so today is the second, I believe you would read Proverbs chapter two. That would be a great thing for you to do with your children. Um, There are sexual themes in the book of Proverbs, so you may have to take that into account since the adulteress is found in almost every chapter trying to compete for the attention of the young. But it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, um, framework for what we're trying to do as parents and what you're trying to do as a church. So I'd like to do, having offered you just a little practical um, tool to read through the Proverbs every day with your your children, let me read these first seven verses and then make some worldview commentary on it. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now I grew up learning that Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. I read Ecclesiastes as an adult and just figured they'd lied to me my entire life. Um, He just doesn't seem to portray wisdom, and yet it shows us how God can even use someone like Solomon. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction and wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, 
Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I want to kind of take verse 7 and show you the worldview implications of some of a simple verse like this. I heard this verse my entire life and grew up, as many of you did, hearing this verse. And I often would stop and think. I, you know, I would say it, I would quote it. People would say, the fear of the Lord is, and I could fill in the blank, the beginning of wisdom. But in adulthood, I've stopped to think about what does that exactly mean? I mean, if it's the beginning of wisdom, that means you've not even started on the course until you come to recognize the fear of the Lord. There are a few classes I teach at Boyce College. I teach Intro to Philosophy, Worldview Analysis, and I teach a class on C.S. Lewis every winter. It just feels much more Narnian to teach it in the winter. And uh, I teach those classes over and over again. And my study of philosophy and worldview and even the writings of C.S. Lewis often make me so much more deeply appreciate the truths of Scripture and make certain things come alive for me that maybe I would, would have missed otherwise. And this verse, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, I've come to appreciate in a very different way. And here's what I mean by this. Um, Charles Darwin, years ago, you can find this letter online, he wrote a letter to a pastor who, friend who had just published a book. In fact, all of Darwin's correspondence is at the website, the Darwin Correspondence Project or something like that, but you can find it and actually read this letter in its entirety. And he wrote to his friend, who was, of course, a believer, and he said to him, he said, I have this horrid doubt within me. It's famously, this excerpt's famously been called Darwin's Doubt, and it's quoted in a lot of Christian apologetics works and articles, books and articles. But Darwin said, I have this horrid doubt within me that if I can't trust the mental reflections of a monkey's mind, then why should I trust the mental reflections of my own mind? And what Darwin understood is that if we are a part of this long, drawn-out process that happened by chance and is unguided, that there's no good reason to trust his own mind um, if indeed he can't trust a monkey's mind because his mind is just a little further removed from the process. And in reading that from Darwin, I was reminded of verse 7 that without beginning with the fear of the Lord, there's a complete loss of what it means to even trust our minds as being reliable. Darwin said if our minds are just a product of, an, of a long series of accidents, it would seem that they're not reliable. Now, Darwin's not alone in this question. He's not alone in this doubt. H.G. Wells, you might know him for his famous War of the World, um, or War of the Worlds, actually, he actually was a philosopher, and he was a historian. He wrote, in fact, I'll mention his books in just a minute, his history books. But he um, published an article called Doubts of the Instrument, and he defended it at a um, forum for philosophers. You can find that article actually online, too, if you wanted to Google it. But the Doubts of the Instrument, the title of the article, and the instrument he was doubting was his mind. H.G. Wells was an atheist, and he realized that if we live in a world that's come into being by accident, that is um, undirected, that there's no ultimate basis for trusting 
what we think. C.S. Lewis illustrated it this way. He said, why would you, if you spilled a, a bottle of milk, you wouldn't expect it to form a map of the city of London because you don't get from an accident something reliable. In fact, there's a, uh, there's a philosopher, a Christian philosopher today by the name of Alvin Plantinga, and he has picked up this argument. In fact, the argument shows up all over the place. Arthur Balfour, who is the prime minister of Great Britain um, at the beginning of the 20th century in like 1902, delivered a series of lectures, and the title of his series was Theism and Humanism, and in it he argues that if there is no God, this is the prime minister, he argued, if there is no God, there is no reason we should trust our mind. Because if everything is here by accident in a long chain of cause and effect, our brains are just one more accident in the universe. So there's a contemporary philosopher by the name of Alvin Plantinga. Alvin Plantinga is Professor Emeritus at the University of Notre Dame, even though he's actually not Catholic. And he's picked up this argument, and the, the name he's given this argument is kind of ironic, I think, kind of funny. It's the evolutionary argument against naturalism. Now, naturalism is atheism, a form of atheism. So it's the evolutionary argument against atheism. And his argument is this. If our brain is the product of unguided processes, then there's no reason we should trust our brain. He actually published a book called Naturalism or Atheism Defeated in which he states his, his thesis, and then he allows all these different philosophers to critique it, and then he comes back at the end and gives a rebuttal. It's not the kind of person who's running from the force of this argument. It's someone who seems like he's pretty confident that the argument holds. And one of the things he says in his response to all the other philosophers is this. You came up with a great argument. I'm impressed. Where did the argument come from? Your brain. You can't rely on your brain. So whatever argument you come up with, it falls under the same shadow of doubt. Now, you may ask yourself the question, is this that convincing to your kind of your average Joe who doesn't believe in God? Well, maybe he's not an average Joe, but he is an atheist, a guy by the name of Thomas Nagel. He teaches at NYU in law and philosophy. He published a book in 1997, and the title of the book was The Last Word. And in it, he honestly admits, he says, some of the smartest people I know are religious believers. He goes on to say, it's not that I have concluded by science that there is no God. It's that I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. But in his most recent book, published in 2012, published with Oxford University Press, which is a prestigious publisher, of course. They don't just give out book contracts. His most recent book, the title is Mind and Cosmos. And he's dealing with Alvin Plantinga's argument. Everybody still tracking with me? Are we good? Uh, he's dealing with this argument. Can we trust our brain if we are, it's the result of these um, non-directed processes? If my brain's an accident, can I find it reliable? And he's still an atheist, but here's the subtitle of his book. The big title, Mind and Cosmos, the subtitle is Why the Neo- Darwinian materialist view, conception of reality is almost certainly false. Now, there are some big words in there, so let me try and unpack that just a little bit. 
Um, Neo-Darwinian, that's pretty self-explanatory. Materialist is another word for atheism. So why the Neo-Darwinian materialist conception of reality is almost certainly false. Here's how he concludes his book. He says there has to be something guiding the process. I don't know what it is. He makes no conclusions, but he says there has to be more. I'm reminded of verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. John, in the prologue to his gospel, says, in the beginning was irrational causes. (laughs) In the beginning was the Big Bang. That's not what he says. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. All things that came into being um, came through him, and nothing that has come into being. He goes on to say, I tried to paraphrase, but messed it up. goes on to say, and the Word became flesh. See, the Christian places behind the universe an intelligent and personal mind. And we come to understand that if you don't start with that, you lose the very basis of truth itself. If you remove God from the equation, you remove the basis for hope, the basis for purpose, and at the end of the day, you lose the very basis for wisdom itself. For how could you ever trust something that comes from an accident? I want to read a poem and and then conclude with a short story. Steve Turner wrote a, a poem several years ago. I heard Ravi Zacharias quote it, but it's an expression of what it looks like to live in a world where we've rejected God. The title of the poem is Creed on the World. And he wrote this to be an expression of what our current generation believes. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone. To the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that sodomy is okay. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything's getting better, despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated, and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals were actually bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same. At least the one we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. (laughs) We believe that after death comes nothing, because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all except perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust and history will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth except the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. His final words are perhaps the most powerful. If chance, which is the atheist story, 
Everything's guided by time and chance. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills 10, troops on rampage, bomb blast school is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. See, if you remove God from the equation, you remove the foundation for what it means to be human itself. So when we teach our children the wisdom of God, we teach them that it's the fear of the Lord that's the very beginning. And if you remove that, everything else will eventually unravel. H.G. Wells published a two-volume series called um, The Outline of Human History or The Outline of History years ago. And he attempted to give an atheistic version of how everything came into being and how life came about. There was a young eight-year-old girl living in the Bronx who had a photographic memory. Her father was an atheist, and he required for her to read this two-volume set from H.G. Wells. She read it and became an atheist like her dad, came out and told everyone, I'm now an atheist. Her name was Helen. Back in Britain, a contemporary and friend of H.G. Wells was G.K. Chesterton, whom I quoted earlier this morning. He couldn't let H.G. Wells have the final word, so he wrote a book called The Everlasting Man, which is actually my favorite of all of his books. C.S. Lewis at that time was an atheist, and he picked up G.K. Chesterton's The Everlasting Man, and he found it so, uh, pro- thought, so provocative and so um, compelling he actually renounced his atheism and started his journey towards, first of all, faith in God and then faith in Christ. After he became a Christian, he was launched onto an international platform for sharing and defending the Christian faith. His first book was a little book called The Problem of Pain. That book, The Problem of Pain, made its way like H.G. Wells' book did across the Atlantic and into the hands of this young lady, no longer a child, her name, of course, still Helen, (laughs) She read C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. She went on to read his, Lewis's Mere Christianity. And she, like Lewis did in response to G.K. Chesterton's Everlasting Man, renounced her atheism and eventually became a Christian. She also eventually moved across the Atlantic and married C.S. Lewis, Helen Joy Davidman, bringing the literary loop full circle from Wells' book that led her to atheism, Chesterton's book that led Lewis to theism, and then Lewis's books that led her to Christianity. I'm reminded that at the end of the day, we need not be afraid. The gospel is afraid of no opponent, and at the end of history, we'll still stand tall. So let's thank God for the gospel, and even those who may be wandering away from the truth, to still cling to the promise that if you teach children in the way they should go, when they're old, they'll not depart from it. They can't get rid of the Spirit of God that's at their heels like the hound. As, as Francis Thompson once said, the hound of heaven. So let's pray and be dismissed to our breakout sessions. Father, thank you for the way you love us, for your goodness and kindness. God, we thank you that you pursue us. Even those who are wandering from you, we know that they, deep embar- embedded in their heart, is the understanding that you exist and that you love them. God, I pray that you would help us to better teach and serve 
future generations with the gospel. Lord, I pray that events like this tonight will be an encouragement, a reminder that the gospel is powerful enough, is powerful enough to save us, and it's powerful enough to sustain our children. So we give you thanks for this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you are dismissed to your breakout sessions.